0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Anita Shreve. This program originally aired in 2008. New England author Anita Shreve has said she could paper her entire bathroom with the rejection letters she received for her short stories before she finally got published. An editor and longtime journalist, Shreve first made a name for herself, winning the O. Henry Prize in 1976 for her short story, Past Island Drifting. Now 14 books later, and Shreve's novels are not only known to her wide and loyal fan base, but to Hollywood as well. Her 1997 book The Weight of Water, which tells the story of the infamous smutty-nose murders off New Hampshire's coast, was turned into a blockbuster movie, while her novel The Pilot's Wife was chosen as an Oprah Winfrey book club selection in 1999. Her latest read, Testimony, deals with a sex scandal at a small-town private school and shows how one misdoing can affect a whole community. Twenty voices, from the victims and the perpetrators, to the families and the headmaster, to the cafeteria worker and newspaper columnist, all slowly help unfold this dark and compelling story. Our house band Dreadnought Heard here provided the evening's music. Today in The Exchange, we play back for you part of this on stage interview with Anita Shreve. Well, thank you all, and it's great to return to the Music Hall for another Writers on a New England stage, and really a pleasure to sit down with you, Anita Shreve. Thanks for being with us. It's great, and congratulations on the book. Since it's brand new, we can pretty safely assume that most of our audience has not read it yet. Anita, please just give us your bare-bones plot description of this book.
1: The novel is about a sex scandal that takes place in a Vermont private school And it involves three senior boys, 18 and 19 years old, and a freshman girl who is 14. And it follows a night of heavy drinking. And it takes place in a dorm room. But what really ups the ante is that a tape, someone is filming this. And it's not only produced on a cassette tape, but it finds its way onto the internet. And when the book opens, we meet the headmaster. And he is viewing this. Uh, I'm going to tell you right in advance. <laughs> a very graphically described tape. But once you're past that, you're in the clear. That's It's fine after that. And it's not, you know, he is he's horrified by it. He's not in the least titillated by it. He's absolutely horrified because he understands that this is going to just cause an immense scandal. And then the press gets hold of it. And what interested me, you know, I wasn't interested in just writing about a sex scandal. that you know, really didn't go anywhere. What was interesting to me is what happened to the boys, what happened to the girl, what happened to the parents and the friends and the teachers, and eventually it ripples out so that it affects the entire small town of Avery, Vermont. And that was the heart of it for me.
0: It really is like dropping the pebble into the pond and then boom, 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 boom. It keeps spreading out all the way out to people like the guy that runs the local real estate office and how he did a little business off of this. Right. The lunch lady who complains that all the parents who came into town after this breaks out has to serve all these lunches. So uh, talk a little bit more about that technique, Anita, of dropping the rock in the pond and having it just spread out and out and out and out.
1: Well, the pebble would be the actual incident, the night, you know, the tape that takes place in this dorm room. But what interested me, and there were several episodes like this in the air. There was the um, Milton Academy event. There was the Duke scandal and a number of others that haven't been quite as newsworthy. And my first thought, especially when I first heard about the Duke scandal, is what was it like to be the mother of one of those boys? And you've had such pride in this child, and he's going places and, you know, might even have a professional career, and his life is ruined. His life is over. Your life, as you've known it, is over. A risky act, a single risky act, and the consequences just move outward, and it not only affects the school and the teachers and the coaches, and then it makes its way out, You know, of course, to the parents, and then the people in the town, once the media comes in, some of them shelter the media and make a lot of money, and others feel like they're collaborators, so they wouldn't do that, and it really divides the town into. Into
0: camps, really? Yeah. Uh, There's that old saying, write what you know, How much is this book about what you know? And I don't mean if you've ever been caught in anything like this. (laughs) I mean, you you said that, you know, what is it like to be a mother to one of those boys? For example, you have a boy and a girl and uh, three stepchildren in addition. So you're a mother of a boy. Uh, Well, the first thing I want to say is I don't believe in write
1: what you know. I I believe in write what you imagine. I'm not trying to wiggle out of this question, but that's, I think, essential to being a fiction writer. First of all, I have to say, this did not happen to my children. It didn't happen to anybody I know. It is entirely fiction. But I did worry about it a lot, and I never write a novel with an agenda. I think that's really the kiss of death. But in a way, I did have an agenda with this one, and I was very concerned about underage drinking. And by underage, I'm talking 12, 13, 14 years old. And we know that their minds can't handle it, but in very critical ways, their bodies can't handle it as well. And what happens when you start drinking that early is that when you get to high school, you have to up the ante a little bit. And it has to entail more risk. And then you get to college, and it has to entail even more risk. And you, know, you finally get to the place where kids are drinking to black out. And that old adage of, um, oh, well, let's let them sleep it off, you can't do that anymore because kids are dying. And it struck me, especially with middle schoolers and the young kids that um, when my kids were growing up, that you were aware that there were parties in town, and you were aware that your kids would sometimes be at them. And I would talk to the mothers, and all the mothers agreed. This was fascinating to me. All the mothers agreed that there was a terrific problem with underage drinking, but not one mother thought it true of her own child. And in the book, there is a mother, Michelle, who agonizes over this. You know, should I have been more strict or less strict? You know, she detects her son telling some lies and you know, on the one hand, she can almost be persuaded that it's not a lie, and it just, you know, she's a very anguished woman because of this.
0: Yeah, that's a heart-wrenching passage. She says, what do I want to say to mothers of sons? Take away the alcohol and don't let them get away with even the first lie. So it's Mm -hmm. heart-wrenching to watch the parents of these children go through this, and yet you're saying this is kind of new territory for you, that you usually don't write a book with an agenda? But in this case, you Um, did. Well, I have an agenda. (laughs) You know, the book is fiction. And what
1: interested me wasn't just writing about the underage drinking, You know, although if you talk to me about it, I certainly could go on at length. What was interesting was getting into the heads of the characters. I originally wrote it uh, the first 50, 60, 70 pages from the point of view of the headmaster. He was going to narrate the entire novel. And then I realized that there were so many things he couldn't possibly know. And at the time, this is how novels get made. At the time, I was reading Faulkner's As I Lay Dying because my son was assigned it in high school and he wanted me to read it so we could talk about it. And at the same time, I was in a plane going to Houston and I overheard in the airport a 14-year-old girl speaking behind me and you know, those several things, they become very important in the book.
0: So that's why you took this new tack and decided to use about 20 characters, is that right? Right,
1: I felt that, for those of you who don't know Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, it's about a a family that's moving the mother who has died to a burial ground, and along the way, each of the family members speaks. And, you know, it's Faulkner, it's not Anita Shreve, so it's an entirely different language, but um, it it struck me as an absolutely fascinating way to tell a story.
0: There's another message that seems to me in this book, Anita, and that's compassion. You read these stories in the headlines and you go, oh, those terrible children, how could they do such a terrible thing? And I certainly had that reaction when I first read it, but as you get to know these characters, you do feel some compassion for them. Mm -hmm. I think it's essential,
1: I mean, two of the three boys are just tremendously remorseful in very different ways. One of the boys is a little hard-hearted and he actually ends up thinking it wasn't his, he really was hardly there (laughs) by his estimation. But if you don't have empathy, I mean, that's really what made me want to write the book was to have empathy for these boys who have been vilified and to see what the consequences are for them and you know in some cases it becomes tragic
0: Anita Shreve's new book is called Testimony. Coming up after a break, more of my interview with Shreve, and later I'll take some questions from the audience as well. I'm Laura Kanoy. You've been listening to a special Writers on a New England Stage broadcast on The Exchange on NHPR. How do you think, Anita, um, technology like YouTube and cell phones that take pictures and Facebook and MySpace, how do you think those available options to express yourself, to put yourself out there, have affected the way that teenagers express themselves and affect their idea of what's right and wrong about what's okay to put out there? Yeah,
1: I actually think this is huge because it's not just that it's filmed. There's something about, of course, now wanting to film yourself in all sorts of risky situations, drinking and partying, and you post it on your Facebook page or wherever. And I actually think that's going to end. I mean, I think that has really changed how kids see other kids behaving, and they think that that's the norm or that's the element of risk and it's exciting to them. I actually think that's going to change though because I think it was about two months in the Times that a number of universities admitted that they had for some time at least a year and a half been able to crack into Facebook and um, they were using it as kind of an anti-recruitment tool because if you, if you have an applicant who says he spent the summer you know, digging latrines in Costa Rica, And then you you go on his Facebook page, and all he's got are pictures of, you know, in someone's dorm room with partying and, you know, the beer beer can in hand and looking obviously not like someone who was digging latrines in Costa Rica. You know, there's a disconnect, and so I think they've been using it. And and my guess is seniors are all going to go the other way and uh, present themselves as
0: they're not. But, well, but, but much better. And that's what I appreciate about the book, is that you tie in that theme both of teen drinking, teen sexuality, but also with this new technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you may be right. There, there may be an effect where the technology makes teens more controlled because they say, uh-oh, it's going to be on YouTube, or someone's going to snap my cell, a cell phone picture.
1: I guess. Uh, the thing I'm a little bit worried about is that, you know, I, I really sound like uh, someone I, not, I never thought I would sound like. But the... The drinking is, is starting so early. You know, I really think it's the the biggest problem facing half a generation of kids, and my feeling is that no one's minding the store. Everybody thinks their kids are fine. It, it's just, I just was kind of amazed um, watching my children go through high school that why there wasn't this massive uprising among parents saying, this is this is not right, this is dangerous, this is, uh, and we, we could conceivably do something about this.
0: What do you mean by that? I sound like someone I never thought I would sound like oh, before. Oh, you
1: know, I mean, I, I can't, it's, so, it's just too embarrassing. I mean, <laughs> it's, um, you know, here I am proselytizing, and, you know, what the heck do I know about it? I, I hardly know anything except that, It's just from what I've intuited on the ground and what I've seen these kids go through.
0: Being a mother, but also being a high school teacher. Talk about that a little bit, Anita, about how that helps you, as an author, get into the heads and the voices of young people in this book.
1: Well, I was a high school teacher back in the day so this wasn't as big a problem and the lingo was very different what helped me was uh, hearing my the, you know the my kids and their friends would come over and um, or I would hear them on the phone or and and they had this own lingo um, you know the guys would have the, you know there's a few examples of it j, j dot speaks a lot in that lingo but I had this a serendipitous, very happy accident where I I was telling you that I was in this airport and there was this field trip of 14-year-olds behind me and they were going to Houston and one of them Started, girl started saying, I, I hate the short, I just hate purple. Do you have a dime? I really need a dime. If I had a dime, I could put together a dollar and I really want to get a such and such. And she was just, and I had about, I wrote down about 10 lines of that. And once I had that, I really had that voice.
0: Mm, that voice of yeah. the young girl. Yeah, I could have girl. written a
1: whole book in that voice. Yeah. I don't think anyone would have wanted to read it, but I really, I had that voice.
0: It is very disconcerting. She said, I, I like Starbucks. Oh, you want to talk about this? Yeah, Do yeah. you think my hair looks good this way? And you're just yeah. kind of going. I think Whoa. I might.
1: I think I might like want to be J Lo. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did your kids reach a point where they said, "There's Ma, don't start talking"?
1: No, they didn't really. First of all, uh, I didn't really begin the book until they graduated. Um, I'm pretty sure about that, and. Uh, my kids, you know, my son, we had an interesting talk about it. He is um, at Duke, oddly enough, a sophomore. And, um, and he, we had a talk last weekend. I was visiting him, and he said, you know, I just, he put his arm around me and he said, I, I just, I feel so bad that I've never read any of your books, and I have so many friends. <laughs> At least he's honest. Yeah, this was meant to be a serious conversation. But anyway, he said, um, you know, all my friends have. And the girls come up to me and ask me, you know, what do I think of this and what do I think of that? And he said, there's something really holding me back. And I I felt exactly what it was. It was that he didn't, first of all, this book... (laughs) A nineteen-year-old boy doesn't even want to know his mother knows what any of that is all about, especially the way it's described. Um, I mean, we all do. We just we think our parents had sex three times, and we have two siblings, and um, <laughs> and and I think he felt I felt that way, and and I think you know when he's about twenty-three or twenty-four, I think that he'll he'll be able to to read them.
0: Well. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you a couple broader questions about mm-hmm. your work because you've got a lot of fans here who have read your other books such as The Pilot's Wife and so forth. Um, your work often has a very dark streak running through it, Anita. Uh, in more than one book, Children Die, um, how do you make those decisions about how dark do I get? I mean, I want to give people meaty material but if you make it so dark and so sad and so terrible, you know your readers are just going to say, I, 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 can't, I can't read her anymore. How do you make those decisions?
1: Um, you don't make a calculated decision like that. The book goes where it wants to go. And I am very committed to reproducing reality. And often, reality is such that it doesn't have a happy ending. I think to construe a happy ending where it's not Wanted or doesn't feel normal or authentic, is 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 to just um, commercialize your book to the point where it, it isn't your book anymore. I do have you know I have glimmers now of happy endings. Um, this one has a you know a voice at the end that gives you maybe maybe a little bit a of maybe sense. glimmer.
0: Yeah, maybe glimmer.
1: <laughs> um, You know, and I have endings. You know, and people ask me about them all the time because they want happy endings. They really do. And people will say, you know, come up and say, you know, um, at the end there, like, are Catherine and Robert going to get together? And uh, you know, I have to tell them the book ends when it ends. (laughs) The the universe that was that book ends when it ends. And I can make suggestions, like little hints or clues. But I can't answer the questions. Does it bother you when people say,
0: your stuff is dark?
1: No, not at all. No, I don't. Um, I probably haven't written a comedic line in my entire life. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it is what it is. I can't, and it's funny, because when I was in high school, my three favorite books were um, Ethan Brome," The Scarlet Letter, and all the, all the works of Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> And uh, it's hard to tell what came first, the the chicken or the egg, because I read those. Was did that influence me towards you know a very tragic view of life, or was I that way anyway? And that's why I sort of was drawn to those books. I suspect it's the former. You know, you wouldn't. In my normal life, you would never say, "There goes a tragic woman." I mean, I'm not. I, I'm like a perfect, not perfectly normal, I won't go that far, but I am, you know, a reasonably normal person. But, but there is a well in me f- from which this comes, and it's,
0: it's not exhausted yet. Does it come from newspaper stories, or your imagination, or where, where does it come from? I
1: would say mostly my imagination. Uh, There are two books that are based on true stories. One, as you all know well, is The Weight of Water, and the other is Resistance, uh, which takes place during World War II. This is, you know, if anybody says rip from the headlines, I'm just going to scream. But anyway, this you could say is that kind of a book in that it, it, it talks about something that you know, is is very current and is very much in the air. But the other ones largely are products of the imagination.
0: You did an online chat session uh, recently with readers of the Washington Post Book World, and one person asked you, why so many of your books, Anita, center around marriages troubled by anger, betrayer, and adultery? Can you answer that for um, us, please?
1: Yes, actually, that's a uh, that's a wonderful... Well, not just the anger and betrayal and the marriage. The the question, I believe, also had to do with love. And it's actually a wonderful arena in which to thrust characters. Because it's the one thing, love um, a love affair or um, without a marriage, is, is the one thing that we're willing to take tremendous risks for to change our moral values to hurt our children and our families and to cause pretty much tremendous upheaval. And uh, so it's not just that I am drawn to that, it's that it's also a a tremendous place in which to put a character.
0: Well, and all those things happen in this book. And I won't give away any more than that uh, at this moment. But I want to return to something you said earlier about your very different technique writing this book. Someone who I know read it said, it's just as much the story as the way she tells it, using these multiple voices. I think there's about 20 voices, right? Yeah, I think Roughly? so too. yeah. Uh, multiple perspectives, often told in the first person, sometimes in the third person. How do you use this technique without running the risk of confusing your reader?
1: That, 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 was, a, that's, that was a challenge. Uh, because I wanted a number of characters. Some of them, of course, are peripheral and you only only hear from them once. But the central characters do reappear. And the idea is you want each take from each character and what, what happened to that person, but you don't want to repeat the information. You really need to keep what I call a thread of suspense moving throughout the book so that you're understanding different points of view, but but you know without the real reader really knowing it, the reader is being pulled on, pulled along to the end of the book um, and that's that's essential, and that was a little tricky in figuring out how to do it mostly i did I did write it as you read it. It wasn't that I wrote testimonies, so to speak, um, of different characters and then fiddled with them and put them in different places. It was written organically. And by the way, testimony, which is a title, um, refers not to legal testimonies, even though the boys are arrested in, this, in Vermont, uh, but almost to biblical testimony. I was there, or I witnessed, or I, be, I, I saw this, or I became part of this.
0: Well, it does give you a sense of how, you know, 20 different people or more can experience one event in a very different way.
1: Yes, very much so. I mean, I think nobody was particularly happy about this. I mean, I don't I, I don't think that emotion really except that there is one high school love affair that is I I would say has is is really a, a a wonderful character. Two wonderful characters.
0: And the guy who makes out a little bit on real estate is happy because, again, all these out-of-towners oh, yeah. come in. That's and That's They say, That's, this is a happiness. nice town. I think I'll buy a house here. Yeah. One more question on this uh, technique, Anita. Um, how much is this a departure from what you've done in earlier novels, this using of you know almost two dozen voices to tell one story?
1: Well, I've never used two dozen, but I have used the technique before in... Uh, Strange Fits of Passion, each person spoke, but in that case, they were legal testimonies. They were, um, a, a, a writer was trying to put this all together, but they were testimonies, a lot of them given in court and some written on paper. Um, I have used voices that go back and forth, you know, one or two. I What I like to do, writing a novel, is to challenge myself. I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in structural hijinks, and I like to find a way to tell the novel that I haven't done in the past, um, and that is exciting to me. Uh, one of the books I wrote backwards, and that was uh, that was last time they met, and that, that was a very exciting challenge, because even though the reader thinks he knows what's happened, um, there are clues placed that he has to know what, happened, what went before to make that happen, and then and then other clues, and then at the end, the, bo- the book sort of turns on the last sentence.
0: You play with time a little bit in this book, too.
1: Yes, I do. Jumping yep. around a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, with so many characters, again, some main characters and some only mentioned once, does it keep you, the writer, or your readers from really developing a relationship with, a compassion for those main characters? You know, we, we can't get to know them too well because there's so many other voices out there.
1: Um well that's for the reader to decide. Um I'd like to think not. I think I, I think the reader develops um an understanding of Silas pretty well. Um and of Sienna in a way. I think the central characters you do you do understand them and and feel feel for them and and try to understand what they're going through.
0: Do you ever get attached to them and you know you're you're word processor and you say, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to kill you, but I, I have to kill you no, now. No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs>
1: um, it was, as everybody knows, the evil characters are the most fun to write, and uh, you don't feel sorry for those characters. you just sort of filled with glee because it's so much fun. Um, the harder ones to write are, are like the boys, you know, the, the 17, uh, the 18 and 19 year old boys, who on the face of it, you, you know, one of them says, people come up to me and they look at me like I'm pure scum. But you realize that underneath, you know, they were boys, you know, one of them says, even the least desirable, the least appealing of these boys, says, you know, talks about all the hours of basketball practice and all the hours of homework and all the hours you know um, in a given year and you add all those years up and one hour and this is the point i hope that that students who read this book get one hour of risky behavior can completely alter your life
0: This is The Exchange. I'm Laura Kanoy. Today we're playing back for you the latest in our Writers on a New England Stage series with Anita Shreve, author of 14 books, including The Pilot's Wife, The Weight of Water, and her latest novel, Testimony. It's about a sex scandal at a small-town New England private school and how one event can affect so many lives. I've been talking with her about her new book. Now it's time to take some questions from the audience. We take you back to this week's event. Let's go right now to some of the many questions we've received from our audience here at the Music Hall. Uh, do you set most of your novels in New England because it is the place you know and love most?
1: I would say so. Um, you are born
0: in Massachusetts, right? I'm
1: born in Massachusetts, spent a lot of time on the coast of Maine and, the, uh, and, and on Cape Cod as a kid and uh, really developed, I think this is definitely Eugene O'Neill, a, a, a literary rapport with the sea. I used to think the sea was an inexhaustible metaphor. I'm not so sure about that now. So I've now moved inland. I've set um, <laughs> one novel in New Hampshire, upstate New Hampshire, and another novel in uh, in Vermont, obviously. You know, but I keep returning to it, and I think almost certainly I will revisit it.
0: Well, and here's another related question: What is your connection to Seacoast, New Hampshire? Did you live here at one time? If you just vacationed here, where did you stay?
1: Uh, Well, I love Seacoast, New Hampshire. Um, What I did was, and I I spent a lot of time here while I was researching the weight of water. What I'm familiar with is the coast of southern Maine, and this great thing happens when you're a fiction writer (laughs) that you can't do as a journalist. I once came across a house on a walk, and it had wrap-around porch. It was white. and had a mansard roof with many dormers all around it, and it was a house I just kind of immediately fell in love with, and the many dormers suggested many bedrooms, which really sort of got my imagination going. And across this, not across the street, but at the end of the street from this house is a convent. So what you can do as a novelist is you can pick the house up, (laughs) you can turn it into its history was once a convent, and you can move it three miles down the beach and, and perch it on the rocks, and then you can move that whole scene down a state. <laughs> so, um,
0: <laughs> so that's kind of what I did. One more question about New England and setting and so forth. We've got a lot of those, and that's great. Uh, does the setting drive the plot, or does the plot drive the setting?
1: That is a really good question. I used to think that the place told me the story, and I thought that was particularly true of um, the weight of water. I know there was a real story, and it's based on history, but the play, being out at the Isles of Shoals is is just a remarkable experience. And I really felt that the place told me the story. And I think that's true. To some extent, in, in all of the books. This one, for example, it has to take place in a small village, you know, winter, snow, um, a very enclosed setting. And, and that worked very well for that. I think it's a lot more than that now.
0: Besides the coast of New England that you love, and this is a question that I have, what would you say that our region provides you as a writer that you might not find in Arizona or Florida or Minnesota?
1: Would not find it in Arizona. I can't tell you. I just, I've been on this book tour. It's going to end Friday. I've been on it since September 27th. I did the first half in Europe, and that was fine, and then um, I am, was an absolute political junkie, I have been for the last year and a half, but it was driving me absolutely nuts. And my publisher, in their wisdom, and I love my publisher, but in their wisdom, just before the election, my three stops each two days were Phoenix, Arizona, (laughs) Dallas, Texas, and charleston south carolina (laughs) and i said i I said you got to get me out of here because i can't have a single conversation with anybody um here and it was a real problem and I, I did request uh, November 3rd, November 4th, and November 5th off. And when I got home, I got in front of M- MSNBC and I never left. I just stayed there the whole
0: time. <laughs> but what about New England? What does it offer you as a writer and so many other writers who've come before you? Well,
1: I think it is the landscape. I, I felt lost in Arizona. I thought to myself, it'd be a great challenge. You know, I'd love to write a novel. Gainesville, Florida, or Arizona, or Wyoming, or you know, and maybe I will someday if I live long enough, but it just seems to me that the thing that that who I am and the characters that I'm most interested in are are really very much new england types and 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 one of the things I liked Hawthorne for when I was um, in seventh grade was that uh, he writes about passion within a framework of restraint. And I think that's how I see the New England character.
0: Here's a question about uh, the characters in your book. This person says, characters who have affairs in your books almost always end up in tragedy. Do these ends seem inevitable as you write, or does the story evolve to this point?
1: Uh, No, I usually know my ending. You do. You you start
0: off knowing that ending. Yes,
1: I do. I think it's a holdover from being a journalist. You know, if you had a feature writer, and you had you had to know your lead and then your kicker, and you had to fit the whole story into 90 lines, and you sort of were able to see the shape of it. And I, I when I'm conceiving of a novel, I'm really thinking about the end as much as I'm thinking about the beginning, so that I know, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I know that that's where I want to end up. And Ian, I would say in most of the novels that's been true, and about page 60 or 70 or so, I'll actually write the last sentence or the last paragraph. Really? Mm. And that's very comforting. <laughs> it is. And if you had 10 writers up here, you would have 10 different answers to this question. And one of my closest friends is Eleanor Lipman, who writes um, uh, comedy. And. Um, we once knit a blanket. That's a secret about me, that is that I knit. I used to knit, anyway. Uh, we once made a blanket of white squares, and we knit it together. And we sent it to our agent, who had a baby. And Ellie's note accompanying it was, um, Anita knit the dark squares, and I knit the
0: light ones. <laughs> <laughs> I have another question, actually, about your your habits as a writer, and that's interesting because you're right. So many people don't know how the end's going to turn out. Mm. So many people. Oh, know no, the that ending. was my
1: point about mentioning Ellie. Is that uh, she's she, she is a firm believer, and you just start out writing, and wherever it takes you is wherever
0: it takes Let you. Let the characters take you.
1: Yeah, and I find that absolutely terrifying because uh, where are they, you know, no, I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, what's your daily habit, Anita, as a writer, if you have one? Um, We've heard from writers who religiously get up at four in the morning and write for four hours, you know, or uh, writers who sit down and say, I'm going to write now for six hours, other writers who, you know, fit it in between grocery shopping and running errands. What's your sort of daily habit as a writer, if you have one at all?
1: Well, I do, and I think it's um, very much was formed by being a parent. I start, you know, I started writing as soon as my kids left for school. And I would go right to the desk in my bathroom. Because I'd been a journalist for 15 years, I didn't view my work as precious or waiting for the muse to come. You went to the desk and you started writing. And if you didn't start writing, you started editing what had come before. And that was a great way to get you into it. And I knew that I only had the four hours. And that's how it started. So I, you know, I would typically at 7.30, go to the desk, and then I would quit about 12.15, 12.30. Um, Until my kids were seven or eight years old, I'm not even sure they knew what I did, because they'd see me in my bathrobe, and I'd be seeing them out, make sure you get this in the backpack, and they came home and I'd be dressed, but I'd be standing there in the exact same place where they'd <laughs> <laughs> left me. And I think it probably wasn't until I started to go on tour that they really got what mom did.
0: Another person in the audience wants to know what you think is the most important part of your writing process. Daydreaming,
1: definitely daydreaming. In fact, the, the best analogy I can give you to writing is, is daydreaming. And we've all done it. We, we've all been driving down a highway, and we're replaying a conversation that happened the night before and putting in the bits that we're, we should have put in and didn't. And we're, we're thinking about a conversation that's going to happen in the future, like, how are you going to explain to your husband such and such and so and so, and, and figuring out that dialogue and how it's going to go. And then you think, oh my god, did I miss my exit? <laughs> and, and, and that we all do it, and the difference between what the, doing that and being a writer is that you're sitting at a table with a pen and a piece of paper in front of you, and there is a, obviously a certain amount of craft brought to bear on that process, but I would say the essential element is daydreaming.
0: And what are the implications then for the next generation of writers as everybody walks around with... Earphones in their ears, or they're constantly talking on the cell. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any space in our modern life for daydreaming. We've always got somebody mm-hmm. or something demanding our attention.
1: Right. I th- I actually think it's a real problem because I think that um, where where is the time for contemplation? You know, when I grew up, uh, my mother would send me out the door after breakfast. And you know, I was let in for my, you know, bowl of Campbell soup and bologna sandwich, and then I was let out again, and then I could come back at five. In fact, I had to be back at five o'clock, and there was a lot of time for just, you know, you'd be, you know, catching pollywogs down by the tracks, but you had just a lot of time to think and imagine. And I don't see, I don't see kids today having any of that. Not, not, not an hour.
0: Reflecting on your own experience, uh, this person wants to know what advice you would give to a new writer who has completed a first novel and is seeking a path to publication. Real nuts and bolts uh, advice wanted here.
1: Um, I, I, I don't know to what extent you've tried so far, but the, um, the the most sensible thing I can think of is to go get a publication called the Writer's Market and um, find there. Are, Every agent is listed, and every, you know, all the contact information and the kinds of things that that agent will accept. And you really should read the kind of thing that you've just written um, so that you will know, you know, to whom to send it. And also, another trick is to look in the acknowledgments, and if a book that's very similar to yours. Uh, or is, is you admire a lot or is something that is you think you know if you write mystery then it would be you know um maybe michael Connolly, or if you like um comedy it would be Eleanor lipman and uh find out who who she acknowledges you know my my great agent uh jennifer rudolph walsh or my you know uh whatever, and that's, that's often a good way to start and say, um, it's hard, it's very, very hard. Another way to go is to take a, a course with an MFA program, and if you know, your teacher, um, professor, really likes your work, some of them have connections and are, are able to go that route.
0: You said in an interview that you could wallpaper a bathroom <laughs> with all the publisher's rejection letters that you got when you first started out, Anita. Uh, what made you keep going after all those rejection letters?
1: Well, we're not talking about the novels, because I'd already been. We're talking about the short stories that I wrote in my, in my 20s. And it is true. I used to joke about it. And then I found the carton that has all the rejection letters in it. <laughs> and it's no joke. I could easily wallpaper my bathroom. What I did was I quit teaching in the middle of the fifth year and actually from the point of view of a parent what I did was appalling because I didn't quit in December I quit in April and I had this very panicky sense that I had to start writing right away and I um you know I started writing and I would send to small literary magazines like the Simran Review or the Ball State Forum and and you know, if I would get rejection letters, I I decided since I wasn't going to graduate school and it wasn't costing me any money to do this, although I was living on my savings, that these were tickets to the game rather than rejections. It was a very difficult period to keep your chin up, as they say, but You know, I just thought that I I would try it for the four years, or or two years, or three years the graduate school would have taken, and if at the end of that time I hadn't had any success, then I would um, obviously had to find some other way to make a living.
0: So, like a good journalist, you set a deadline for yourself.
1: I I did, yes, yeah.
0: A few last questions from our audience, Anita. Here's one: The Weight of Water is my favorite book of all time. I've read it at least a dozen times. This person wants to know which book of yours is your favorite. I know you've gotten this question before. I know. It's
1: hard because um, I I can't really say that I have a favorite. I think some are, you know, worked out better than others. Um, I tend to be most excited about the book that I've just completed, so I'd have to say at this moment it would be testimony. Um, I usually hate the most the book that I'm working on at the moment, which is... Definitely true this time. Uh, you know, I have ca- some characters that I'm fond of, but
0: I don't. I don't. The an- true answer is I don't. And along those lines, Anita, are you working on a new book? And if so, can you tell us about it? Uh, the answer is yes.
1: And the second answer is no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, Anita, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Really wonderful talk. Thank you.
1: Thank you, I enjoyed it.